Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Working in the emergency medical service places a huge toll on the mental and emotional well-being of our paramedics. So what can we do to help prevent mental ill health on the front line? Joining us this week is Todd Weir, the director of the Queensland Ambulance Service Staff Support Services, known as Priority One, in which he leads a multidisciplinary team. Todd has spent more than 25 years in the first responder sector, initially as a firefighter and later becoming a paramedic. Having already completed a degree in psychology and later a master's degree in counselling, he was able to focus his studies on emergency services and combine this with his lived experience. During his time in the ambulance, he has also had the privilege to speak and provide training with other agencies nationally and internationally. In 2016, Todd was recognised on the Queen's Birthday Honours List and received the National Ambulance Service Medal for his work in supporting ambulance personnel and their families. Stay tuned as Todd speaks about his lived experience as a first responder and frontline worker and explores practical strategies to prevent mental ill health in the workforce. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Pebble in the Pond. With me today gives me great pleasure to introduce Todd Ware. Todd, welcome. Thanks Sam, good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming along and also to take some time and share your journey with our listeners and all the wonderful Mm. things you've been up to with QAS and and that sort of thing. But let's start with your professional background. Where did it start for you as far as wanting to get into what you're doing now? Yeah, well it's a bit of a long journey and a little bit uh, of a curvy road that got me to where I am now. But I started, I actually started a psychology degree nearly 30 years ago now, so it's Quite some time. And during that degree, I was also working in the fire service at that time. And so I already had an interest in emergency services. Is really, I loved the type of work that it was. I loved that it was dynamic in nature. And then as I was approaching the end of my psychology degree, I thought, well, what am I going to do next? And we had a pretty close working relationship with the local AMBOs that were there. And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, maybe that's a good step next because it's still... Um, provides an opportunity to have that first responder type work but also an opportunity to keep on learning and also an opportunity to apply my skills uh, from the psychology degree that I was doing 
So I applied for ambulance at that time, sort of completed my psychology degree, came into Queensland Ambulance. And, and I remember at the time, because I came in with a psychology degree, I was kind of interested in how come I can see people in this job that have been here for 20, 30, 40 years some of them are really coping really well. They're happy, they're resilient, and they're really keen to keep on learning. Yet a smaller number of them were actually really traveling not very well. They were cynical and negative and jaded. And starting early in my career, a bit selfishly, I was looking at oh, how do I prevent to get to that, prevent myself getting to that cynical, negative, jaded group. I wanted to be able to have some longevity in the role and enjoy myself in the career. So I did some unofficial research and found that there was a whole lot of factors that actually did uh, help in terms of maintaining that well-being. It wasn't just about the individual, it wasn't just about the organisation, it wasn't just about the availability of psychologists. There was a whole heap of factors. And so then I spent a number of years on road and learnt some ways of looking after myself in that. So about 14 years on road and got to spend, or got to do a number of different positions in those roles and still kept on coming back to this idea of wanting to support staff more. I did have friends in the service who really struggled in the roles. And then again, I also had friends who were really coping very well in the roles. So I, I had the opportunity about 10 years ago now to come into the staff support services, Priority One. And Priority One now actually has been around for 30 years. So it's been in the service for quite some time. I initially Worked as a staff counsellor, uh, had my psychology degree, did some postgraduate qualifications and master's degree in counselling, and and then sort of got to this role as the director of the program where I, I kind of, you know, enjoy the fact that I still work in a emergency service, I still work in a front first responder role, but get to do something that really aligns with my values, which is about how to look after staff and how to look at that look at that preventative space. You know, I want to be able to provide an opportunity that I had for staff coming through now. Like, how do we look at your well as you come in? How do we look at you maintaining that well-being? And how do we keep you well during that time frame? So for however long that needs to be for them. So, and if they, they're wanting to leave, I want them to leave because they're looking at a new career path or a different way, you know, of, of experiencing their own life. So, yeah, I, I don't want them to leave because they're, you know, injured. They're psychologically injured. So that's kind of my journey to here. That's really interesting. I mean, what, what made you want to do psychology in the first place? Yeah. I, well, I'd, already, I'd always been fascinated with trying to support people. I think I was a natural supporter before I did psychology. I was the kind of go-to person that people okay. would come to and talk to. I did psychology and I, I kind of felt a bit disappointed by the end of my degree because back then there was no Medicare levy. So a lot of people couldn't actually uh, – uh, Medicare rebate, sorry – so a lot of yeah. people couldn't actually access the psychological services that they needed. And so then I saw, you know, first responder services, another way to be able to provide that support to staff. And when you mention on-road, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, I was a frontline paramedic. So, oh, so you're a fully qualified yeah. paramedic as yeah. well? Yeah, so I was a paramedic on-road for a number of years and, and then I've also had an opportunity to do a number of different management positions in those roles in ambulance. And how was how was it going from the fireys to the to the ambulance? I mean, how did you find that transition? And and is there much of a difference? Not, I'm not talking what you do mm. but as far as your organisation. There is in a way, and there isn't. Okay. <laughs> so that's a simple answer. I, I think in a way, there's one of the things that I really love about working in first responder organisations is that sense of connectivity, that uh, relational aspect. 
that people have and, and you know, your, your peers and your colleagues are your supports. You know, you could get that in the fire service and in the ambulance service. So I really enjoyed that aspect. I certainly, yeah, I think in a lot of ways those roles were different. How people did the roles were very different and how they saw the world. But having said that now, the QAS as an ambulance, as an organisation, has changed significantly. It's different now to what it was over 20 years ago when I started. So it's a continuously evolving industry. And tell me, with the with the twenty years or so that you've been with them, mm. you've obviously noticed the changes. But mm. tell us, compared to where we were, what are what are some of the big leaps we've made? Certainly, in this mental health space, oftentimes because I'm working in it, it feels like oh, I just want to move further. I want to get further along. But I recently uh, went to a regional station, and all the staff there there were paramedics, full of paramedics in the room. And they're all talking about which psychologists they go and see and why in a very open discussion. And it was a real eye-opener for me because I thought, wow, we have moved such a long way. Uh, These conversations, even 10 years ago, would not have been had out in the open. It would have been a quiet conversation with me in another room or outside where somebody might disclose that they're accessing one of the psychologists. This was a very open uh, and comfortable conversation, just in the same way you'd talk about who your mechanic is or who your GP is and why you go and see them. So I saw that as a really significant progression. The, the other big thing I've seen is managers, and we certainly have seen a big increase in managers accessing support for themselves. And we tend to hear that managers are actually talking to staff saying, hey, you know, I went and saw a psychologist. It was really helpful. And that just helps break down some of those barriers where staff are concerned about their career. It's not going to impact their career and when they can hear that their manager's saying, no, I did it, you know, it, hasn't, it hasn't impacted on my career, that just helps break that down as well. So that's been a really big change, particularly in the last 10 years as well. In this. And I think you know, a lot of that has been around a lot of the education that we've done and just breaking down some of those myths of what access to support is and also taking a really preventative approach around don't need to wait till you're unwell to access a psychologist. You can access a psychologist at any point in time and actually that's how you maintain that well-being. And, and that was one of the things I learned when I first started in the ambulance service. Those people that were travelling well were really proactive in their well-being right from the start. They were okay about accessing supports. They were okay about having a life outside of ambulance as well. So there's a whole heap of different aspects that they had. And now we tend to hear about people accessing our external counsellors for a checkup to make sure they're doing okay or accessing them before they go on leave so that they can, you know, down or debrief with them before they go on leave. So I think that's a really healthy way of looking at things. There's a lot of things that you mentioned there and, and you can certainly tell that there's been a change over, over your time so mm. far. Tell us about the role of and the importance of the peer support. Yeah, actually, it's Peer Support Week this week, so I just want to acknowledge the peer supporters that are out there. And our peer support program next year will be going for 30 years. It started a bit after the program itself started. But they've been really a pivotal point for people to access support and to help break down some of those barriers to accessing support. And these are people who are volunteers. They do it on top of their work roles. They do it on top of their life. And they do it because they just want to help their colleagues. So the current serving yeah. members? Yeah. Yep. Current okay. serving members. And there's five different criteria or something, five different phases for them to be a PSO. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So they. one thing I often say, the program that we have, doesn't create peer supporters. Peer supporters are already peer supporting before they come onto the program. Gotcha. It's about how we can help support them to continue to do that and give them the resources to continue to do that. 
So one of the things that are really important to me is that we don't put peer supporters, a formal peer supporter, at for themselves. So they do go through a process where they have an interview, then they, they do a selection criteria, have a referee reports, do an interview, and then they get invited onto the course. And the course is uh, a six-day live-in course. It's quite intensive. It's not just about what can you do to fix that person. Some of it is about what can you do to help look after yourself in this role? You know, what's happening for you now? How can you be intentional about your self-care and how can you be intentional about how you support others? So it's a really experiential journey for them. And then following that course as well, then we have refresher workshops that are very similar as well and also supervision. As you know, these people uh, are not just isolated in their areas. They're part of a much broader team, our peer supporters. So, And I want them to know that, that they can phone a friend whenever they need to. Within the ambulance service, I mean, how important has that been getting buy-in but also prioritising mental health from from management and from you know the higher up yeah. side of things, the top top down approach. Has that been has it been evident? Yes, yeah, and I think that's really critical within organisations that it is coming from the top. In QAS, we're actually structured in a way that that actually supports it because my role reports directly to the commissioner. So that says to the organisation, this is just as important as KPIs. This is just as important as clinical outcomes for patients. This is just as important as fleet and equipment. So all of those things that are the operational side of the role. So I think that in itself sends a message. And then, you know, when we look at senior executives, I've, I've actually come into the back end of meetings and seen senior executives say, you know, I've accessed a psychologist, so it's helpful to do that. You know, mm. we would encourage that. So I think, I think that's really critical those ongoing messages from senior executives because you're still going to get people that come into the service and they're worried about what's going to happen if I disclose that I'm really struggling or I'm not travelling well. And it's really powerful messages from those people. How do you think we're doing in the induction process of QAS with with regards to having that awareness of of yourself, Mm. uh, mental and wellbeing side of things? Do you feel like we've come a long way in that aspect as well and trying to educate people as they're coming into the program or to the organisation? Yeah, we do a program called Finding the Silver Lining and it's it, there's a multi-stage process of that program. You can actually download the ebook from iTunes for free. So if anybody wants that, I'm not getting any money for it. So <laughs> you can download it for free. But part of that process, now the trick is when people come into the service, they're thinking, I'm going to be fine. I'm not going to be rattled by things. So Hopefully they remember some of the stuff we talked to them about, but we do a a, um, face-to-face session with them coming up when they first come into the service. Then we give them a reflective book, a reflective workbook and a journal, and then the finding the silver lining. And then over the next 12 to 24 weeks, they provide some journal entries into there, which they then take to one of our external psychologists. And it's really an opportunity to help break down stigma for accessing support. People get to learn how to access them, but it's not just looking about, well, what were the negative experiences you've had? What are some of the positive experiences you've had? What sort of coping skills have you been using? And it's interesting because we tend to find uh, a lot of people aren't too concerned about the jobs that they've been to, those negative experiences. For some, it's the stress has been that they've you know, growing up in, in Sydney and now they're working up in Cairns. So they're away from their support networks. Right. They're away from their resources, their, yeah. you know, sports. So some of that is the stress that they're experiencing. Then there's an early opportunity to go, okay, well, 
what can we do with this stress? How are some ways that you can link in? So I think that's been a really valuable program to be able to start and to start break down some of that stigma. And we've had some people that have come back from that and they've gone, oh, that was actually really useful. There are some really useful strategies because I think people have this uh, misconception that they're going to be laying on a couch and talking to yeah. Freud for the next 10 years. So they're actually seeing there's some useful strategies and we've had people go back when they don't need to go back, but they want to be able to identify some strategies. And I certainly think that that's a big way of breaking down some of the barriers to accessing support within the service where people are going, actually, I know how to access it. It was actually quite useful, so I can do it again and I can do it in a proactive way. Man, what, what a great opportunity there that you have I mean, to, to create that awareness on the upfront, but then also follow up with those other questions, you know, three to six months into their first sort yeah. of few months of service to just to just to tell them, hey, this is the norm. It's okay. These services are here and it's it's actually cool to take it, not cool not to take it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and we've had I know I've had one, you know, or I've had multiple students say to me, um, when I've done the sessions, said that this is so good that we actually do have to access the psychologist because I am a bit anxious. You know, I'm about anxious about how I'm going to be when I get out there on road. So the fact that everybody has to do it, I don't have to feel like I'm, you know, the one yeah. who's not coping or the one that's really struggling. And, and, and this is the whole point of going, well, no, this is about how you stay well in a job. We employ people who are well. We need to keep them well. And you've almost recalibrated the new norm, haven't you, to say, well, this is the norm, yeah, not the abnorm. Yeah, I think so. I think there's still work to do in that space and you yeah. know, we see it around self-stigma and I, and I certainly get that. I think there's a lot of aspects that are broken down around people feeling very comfortable about supporting others. There is still some self-stigma exists because you know, oftentimes yeah. paramedics are rocks for people. They are the, yeah. the, you know, the key support for everybody else. So it can be sometimes difficult to go, actually, no, I really need to be able to support myself at this point in time as well and access the services that are there. So there's still work to do, but I always say if, if we think there's no work to do, we're probably not looking. So. Yeah. No, that, sound, that sounds good, Todd. And, and I have heard that, I mean, priority one sets the gold standard for care uh, and mental health and wellbeing. Could you explain, we've probably touched on a little bit of it anyway, but could you explain what priority one is and mm. and and how long, I know the program's been going for a little bit, but how you're finding the success of the program. Yeah, I don't know about gold standard. I think we do pretty well. But yeah, we, we've been going now for 30 years, as I said, this year, or actually last year was 30 years for the program. And one of the things about the program that's, that's fairly unique is that it's, it's continued to evolve because it's not the same organisation today as it was 30 years ago. So we've had to continuously keep doing research. We've had to continuously keep doing evaluations and looking at gaps in terms of what is... What is needed in this culture now? Because that's very different. So, yeah, we initially had a handful of psychologists who were available in the very early years of the Priority One, and they were available to be able to see face-to-face, -face, and they were able to see to have a phone service as well, so people could contact them by phone. And then that network has continued to evolve and grow. And one of the things that we're really big on is not just going, okay, we're going to outsource these counselling services to a, a company, we're going to individually select our counsellors based on their ability to work within this population, their ability to work within the context that we're asking them to work with and how they might fit with the population because it, you can have the greatest psychologist in the world but pe if people don't like them or they don't fit yeah. with, the, with the culture, then people just won't access them. 
So, and also we like to have relationships with those people. So we know what their skill sets are. We know who's going to be the right person to be able to go, actually, I think this would be the best fit for you because they work in this space all of the time. So that's continued to expand. We then commenced the peer support program a couple of years after the program starting, and that's continued to, uh, we run two courses, new recruit courses every year. We run two refreshers every year. We also have an LGBTIQ plus support program within that and, and an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander support program within that. And also our chaplaincy network uh, that's available across the state is also, they have to also do the peer support training. So everybody's getting that consistent training and it is about bringing people back to just being human. It's not about rank or structure or who you are. It's just about uh, humanity. So, uh, yeah, so then we've got the peer support program. Then we've got internal counsellors. So that's been a big change in the last couple of years. We got some significant government enhancements to be able to put regional councillors across the state. Prior to that, we had a small handful of us in Brisbane and we would tend to travel around the state. But now we've got regional councillors from Cairns all the way down to the Gold Coast. And, and that's been a really good opportunity. It's not, uh, you know, the goal for those people is not to just sit in a room waiting for people to come to them and do counselling. Their job is to be able to get out there and build relationships with the paramedics, um, get to know who they are, what kind of work they do, what are the stresses that they're experiencing, and so that the paramedics can then feel comfortable with those people um, and get to know them, um, get to ask them questions, get to break down some of the stigmas. So that's been a really helpful role, and particularly given that they're in those localised areas, it's really important that we don't just have a program that only works in Brisbane. You know, we've got a highly diverse population across a huge geographical area. We've got full-time paramedics on Thursday Island and down to Kanamala. So we can't just have something that's going to work really well on the Gold Coast or on Brisbane and then no. So the, the, our internal regional councils do a lot of that, a lot of work in the preventative space, and they also do a lot of coaching for managers and supervisors because managers you know, often want to do the right thing by their staff. And so they, they might touch base with a counsellor and go, oh, I'm not sure what to do in this space. What do you think? And then the other component is the education component. And we do invest quite heavily in education because it is a really good opportunity to start to move into that preventative space. So we do education with university students before they come and do their placement within ambulance. Hopefully they remember that. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. They've got lots of information that they're learning uh, education re regarding well-being and yeah, stuff like that? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, education in terms of the mental health and well-being. I, I think the other important part is oftentimes people are going, oh, I am going to end up with PTSD. You know, my parents are telling me that. Everybody's telling me that. Well, no, that's not the only outcome. In fact, most, you know, ambulance personnel are highly resilient. Most, you know, do experience post-traumatic growth. But there are a number of factors involved in that. And this is how you can start to think about how you're going to look after yourself in your career. So then we get them through the Finding the Silver Lining program. Then we also do training with our managers and supervisors, and that's mandatory training for every acting manager up. And we've repeated that training over the last 11 years now. So that training's been ongoing, and that's the other big shift I've seen in the ambulance service. So I remember doing one of the very early trainings 11 years ago, and managers were tending to go, oh, why do we need to know this? That's not our job, but, you know, that's mental health. That's priority one's job. But now when I do the training, managers are coming and going, yeah, of course this is our job. You know, we really want to know more about this. This is a really um, interesting space. 
So that's been a really big shift in even in managers, how they think about mental health, how they think about their own mental health and how they think about their staff's mental health. And so that's been a, a big focus in terms of our training as well for the managers and supervisors, yeah, our graduates coming through and, and our peer supporters and trying to integrate all of those layers. They're not separate silos. They're all part of Priority One in coming together. And then we do a lot of ad hoc different types of training programs um, last year we did training around sexual harassment where um, the goal was to get across all of the staff and make it around not the um, HR staff or IR staff, it's about that discussion around the psychology, understanding it. I don't think most people go to work wanting to harm their colleagues. I think mm -hmm. it often happens accidentally. So it was really about having a, a conversation around what does that mean uh, for people and how do we open up these communication channels, in, you know, harming each other so so yeah that that again and that's about trying to prevent the injury from happening in the first place because if we wait for that to happen then yes then priority one will come in and we'll provide psychologists and that's kind of the easy part for a staff support program but it's not easy for the individual who's suffering from that and then it's not easy for their family and it's not easy for the workplace how are you finding or are you, how's success being measured on this Mm. Yeah, we've had, over the years, we've had around, I think about 37 research aspects of different parts of the program. So Finding the Silver Lining had some research done around that specifically. And then every 10 years, we have a, an external review of the program where we have representatives from the organisation. We have, last year, we had Professor Jane Shakespeare Finch from QUT conduct an, an external review of the program to identify is it still meeting the needs of the organisation? Myself and my team are not involved in that. We apply information and data because we want an external uh, view of what it's like. So I think that's we've had lots of opportunities to really evaluate different parts of the program. For me, an evidence-based intervention is really important. You know, there are some things that might look good or might sound good, but I really need to know, do they have the evidence behind them and specifically like, I don't want to be causing harm for people in terms of providing uh, mental health interventions. And it's a serious thing. Like, the implications can be quite detrimental or, you know, have really good outcomes. So you want to know that before you go roll it out. Absolutely. Like you know, the whole debriefing was was an aspect of that where organisations in, in, you know, in the best of interest wanted to support staff and rolled out critical incident stress debriefing and the, the formalised model and it wasn't till the research was done that they found it could be more harmful. So we don't want to repeat those types of interventions. Well, I know other services, emergency services in not only the state of Queensland but in, in around the country look to this and they say, well, you know what, they've got external counsellors and the fact that you guys choose that based on your criteria to make sure they're a good fit mm. I mean, they look to that and go, well, I mean, that, that just makes sense. It just makes sense to get someone external to the organisation where it's not connected. Yeah. But, but the fact that you've done it as an external thing is number one, but number two then is to go on the extra step and say, well, hang on, if we're going to go externally, we need to make sure that these people are going to be a good fit and, and have that almost that proactive criteria to choose who's yeah. best. I mean, that's other services look at this going, oh, that's the reason why, why they're probably considered you're probably considered the gold standard for this. Yeah, it's, it is really important to us and having those relational aspects and access to our external counsellors. People don't have to contact us. Their numbers are available independently for people to contact. And every group I get to in front of, I say, 
I don't, as the director of the program, I don't even know who accesses those external counsellors. It's de-identified demographic data. And nor would I want to, nor would I need to. In fact, we get about 4,500 contacts a year, so it would be far too much to me even, to even keep a track of. But, um, and then there are some people who go, no, I only want to talk to somebody internally because they understand the organisation. And right. some of my internal counsellors have been paramedics as well. My, my senior chaplain has been a paramedic for over 35 years. So sometimes people go, I want to talk to somebody internal. So people have got options around either. And those options, I think, are an important component as well in being able to do that. So, yeah, we've been lucky. And as we have seen a change in the dem demographic in the last few years, we've seen a need now to have more external counsellors who can provide counselling for children who can provide relationship counselling because there's more of an increasing need for that. So because our services are available to families as well as the paramedics and emergency medical dispatchers and corporates. So we've seen, yeah, people are actually needing more access to those services as well. So we've been able to enhance them as we've gone as well. So they get access, the family get access to the services as well? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, and again, it's a kind of about that holistic view. You know, people are getting the support they need at home as well as the support they need at work. Yeah, it is taking a holistic approach to going, well, sorry, can't support you. That's not a fully work matter because you can't, as much as it's good to say, you can't leave your home at work and you can't leave your work at home. It's all part of you. And this seems to be a bit different to an EAP program. Yeah. Tell us about, I mean, I think it distinguishes pretty obvious to distinguish the difference but the fact that you're not just getting a random person mm. uh, I mean tell us more about the fact that you want to deliberately make that different yeah I think and I get to talk to lots of different organizations and oftentimes they go oh how do I you know get such a program going but I think it comes down to simply relation and if those relationships aren't in place then people won't access them so and you know i think eap programs have got a place but they don't get an opportunity to build those relationships staff don't get to know who they are start uh, our peer supporters wouldn't get to know oh i know that psychologist they're really good i think they'll be a good fit for you so i think that relationship aspect is really important and has actually worked really well for us where we know who our counsellors are. We know um, who's going to be the right fit. Our peer supporters get to know who they are and they get to know then, you know, I think this person would be a really good fit for you personality-wise. So I think that is the big difference and it's something as simple as relationships, but it's also very complicated. Yeah. Yeah, and so it, the ongoing education that gets provided to people around, you know, making sure they're getting enough sleep and, and mindfulness and stuff like that, you've got proactive programs that are doing that as well? Yeah, I'd like to do more in that space. I think one of the biggest, you know, really benefits of, of what we've learned over the last 10 years is the neuroscience and people uh, and us getting an opportunity to teach people about the neuroscience, what the hap what's actually happening in the brain if you're not getting enough sleep, what's actually happening in the brain if you're um, using, you know, alcohol or drugs to cope and what happens in the brain in the context of trauma. So we know so much more about that now. And paramedics love it because then they can go, oh, this is not just about some sort of touchy-feely subject. It's not about tree-hugging. There's actually science. You can see changes in the brain. There's a physiological occurrence. So I think that's been a really excellent opportunity to be able to then provide that education to staff. And, and part of the role of our regional council is being able to not just not only have formalised education sessions, but being able to get out to a station if it's not too busy, <laughs> which yeah. is getting harder nowadays, but even onto a ramp 
And talking through something like sleep with people or talking about the neuroscience and what happens in the context of trauma. So those discussions can also happen formally and informally. So I, I always think how's the best way to get to across more staff all of the time because it is getting busy and, you know, that's consistent across, consistent across the services. Something like this is a good idea with a podcast. Well, I mean, that's it. How do you scale it? How do you get to reach more people uh, mm. in less amount of time? So you feel like this, the stigma side of things is getting better over your time that you've been there. Obviously, people are accessing the services. They're feeling comfortable to actually be able to talk about it and not hide from that, mm. which is really good. The services that you're providing during service, obviously, top of the tree as far as what everyone's striving to achieve. And I know you're continually trying to evolve the approach. Mm. Was the structure a priority one was that based on on did you guys just make this up did you get an international is it something you've taken from overseas how did you come up with it yeah it's a good question it's kind of initially we weren't the first program that was in place so uh, victorian ambulance had a program that was in place new south wales fire had a program they both had peer support programs in place and so the manager before me was paul scully and he started the program and he had some really good experts who could provide him some advice. So Professor Gary Embleton uh, was a professor, psychology professor at QUT, emeritus, the late emeritus Professor Beverly Raphael, who was an expert in this space, could provide some advice in relation to well, what's the best, you know, currently what's happening and what is the evidence basis at that point in time. And they went and had a look at the, the models that were being rolled out in, in Victoria and New South Wales and then began to develop this model. And, and I often say to organisations, like, we didn't start off really big. We actually started off pretty small and built it up. So I think the key thing is getting the foundation right and having a full-time position managing the role is really important. I think a lot of organisations go, well, how do, I, how do I put somebody in there to as a temporary thing or, you know, the, as another part of their role. I think having that full-time position was really important. And then continuing to evolve and that has been based on, yeah, what has been, what the key research is that's coming out, what the evidence is that is being shown. So we've had the...
Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.